This is the Verbatim Word Podcast, where we seek biblical truth in a daily context. I'm Justin Gary. Every now and then I hear a song on the radio that totally takes me back to a period of my childhood. I was born in San Diego, California, and we moved to Hawaii when I was five years old, but I have vivid memories of driving around San Diego in the late 70s in my mom's gold Cortina, not wearing seatbelts, of course, because no one did at the time, cruising down to PB or out to Mira Mesa or up and down Jutland Avenue to Price Club before it became Costco, the radio playing the soundtrack of those days and that era. And even today, when I hear certain songs, I'll say to my wife, oh, that is such a San Diego song, because it's something that played on the radio in those days and jogs my memory bank and takes me back to those times and hearing songs on the radio. Now, one of those songs I remember is one called You're So Vain by Carly Simon, a good old breakup song when the girl realizes she's not in the healthiest relationship and the guy is just too into himself. And the chorus goes, you're so vain. You probably think this song is about you. You're so vain. You're so vain. I bet you think this song is about you, don't you? Don't you? Well, the vanity of the 70s has morphed into the narcissist of our era. And it's not just putting up with someone who's into themselves. It's a diagnosed disorder now when someone is really wrapped up in themselves. A quick web search found the textbook signs of a narcissist. Apparently, you can use the acronym Special Me to remember the nine signs of narcissistic personality disorder. Special Me, S, sense of self-importance. P, preoccupation with power, beauty, and success. E, entitled. C, can only be around people who are important or special. I, interpersonally exploitive for their own game. A, arrogant. L, lack empathy. M, must be admired. E, envious of others or believe that others are envious of them. Special me. That's the guy that Carly Simon must have been dating back when she wrote that song, and maybe someone a lot closer to home. A friend was telling me recently about a conflict that they had with someone, a sticky situation full of blame shifting and protecting ego, throwing my friend under the bus instead of admitting their own mistake. And as my friend was relaying the situation to me, they said, but it's a pretty typical because that person really is a textbook narcissist, which made me think after, wow, but we all do those things in some degree or another, blame others, worry about what people think, resist admitting wrong. So did that make me a narcissist too? Does that make you a narcissist too? Do we all have some degree of narcissism in us? Is the four-year-old in your Sunday school class a narcissist when they don't admit they ate the paste and instead shift the blame on the kid next to them? If you think about it, we all have some degree of a narcissistic personality, don't we? It's what God calls our sin nature, which will always cause us to look out for ourselves first, place ourselves at the center of the universe, think the world revolves around us, or at least wants it to. And maybe it's just to what degree we are demonstrating narcissistic behaviors in the moment or that situation, just how loudly our narcissist dial is turned up at that moment. So all of it is wrapped up to the same root. Whether we call it pride in the Bible or vanity on the radio or narcissism in the psychiatrist's office, it's all rooted in sin. When Adam and Eve took the bait and believed the lie that we could be like God, that it could all revolve around us. And it is precisely why Jesus came to die for us. Jesus is the antithesis of narcissist, self-giving rather than self-loving, others-centered rather than self-centered. I saw a book online called The First Will Be Last, a biblical perspective on narcissism by D.C. Robertson. And the description said this, while the Bible does not use the exact term narcissism, a word from Greek mythology, it most certainly speaks to the subject. 
In fact, if you look carefully, you might be surprised at just how much and how directly Scripture speaks about narcissism and narcissistic people. The book is apparently an A to Z look at the biblical perspective on the topic, including who they are, how they got that way, and how to deal with them. Now, Jesus is the solution for any narcissistic tendencies because he beckons us to die to ourselves, something that we all resist to do. And whether we are in the flesh or resisting the spirit or indulging in sin and rebellion, the results will always place us somewhere on the narcissist spectrum and continuum. As we wrap up Stephen's interactions with the religious elite in Acts chapter 7, we find this Christ follower in a room of narcissists, unable or at least unwilling to see their own error or wrong. And as Stephen rounds the bases to slide into home plate here, he also points out aspects of their own history that shows that they had often made it all about them rather than keeping God at the center. And their rejection of Jesus, their long-awaited Messiah, was a direct result of keeping their eyes on themselves and taking them off of God. So when Jesus showed up, they completely missed him. Well, it doesn't end well for Stephen, as we'll see in Acts 7, verses 37 through 60. Surprisingly, the hearing full of religious leaders has remained silent for some time as they listen to what Stephen has been telling them. Pretty odd, since many times, narcissists will not let anyone else get a word in. But Stephen has been speaking about them, so they are listening in since they have been the focus, as Stephen recalls their history, a history that they were proud of, rehearsing God's call to Abraham, then Joseph, and on to Moses, so they are all ears. And Stephen has finally caught them up to the Red Sea crossing and the wilderness wanderings of the people of Israel. And we pick up in Acts 7, verses 37 through 41. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. As Stephen recalls their history, he talks about how God set them up for success, set them free from bondage of slavery in Egypt. And God has a plan for them, a land for them, a law for them, even a Messiah through them as he refers to that prophet who would come. Think about that. God was so good. They had a leader in Moses, and a qualified one, one who had been spared in the basket in the Nile, one who had been trained in the household of Pharaoh, having been drawn out of the river by Pharaoh's daughter, one who had been equipped through his humble 40 years in the backside of the wilderness, one who had been divinely called through the burning of the bush, and one who had been mightily used to stand up to Pharaoh, 10 plagues backing him up. Not only had God given them a leader, but they had a promise that God was going to continue with them as his chosen people. This was not just a short-term prison break commitment that God made to them when they left Egypt. Not a, well, I can take you as far as the border, but then you're on your own from there. He promised through Moses that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear. This was a foreshadow of the Messiah who would come, as they were the chosen nation through whom to bring the world's Messiah, Jesus. God had also given them divine revelation through the angel on the mountain, the law, a divine way of living that would bless them and honor them, saving them much of the heartbreak and ruin of the nations around them if they would just hold it 
and hear it and obey it. Stephen called it the living oracles, not a dead law. The law was good, as Paul wrote to Timothy, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And God's purpose in the law was good, as Paul wrote to the Galatians. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The law was intended by God to be a blessing, though they had twisted it and made it a burden. One of the reasons Jesus had beckoned them some time before this scene with Stephen with the words, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Stephen's audience had taken the things that God had given them and twisted them, made them burdensome. They had been given God's prescriptions all the way back when they left Egypt and around Mount Sinai, but they had made them into something else. It's like when the doctor prescribes something, but it is abused for something it was never intended for. Or like Frankenstein, taking pieces and parts and putting them together in a way that seems to work, but it's kind of monstrous. Stephen tells them that they had been given what they would need, but instead they worshipped and did according to their own devising, and it was not pretty. That's something our narcissist nature will do. Think that we can improve on things, or that somehow the rules don't apply to us. That is, it's all just recommendations, but that we can somehow figure out our own way. God knew this nation intimately, who they were and what they would need. He knew where they were going and what they would encounter. And if they would just trust God in faith and follow him, they'd be all good. But our narcissistic nature rebels because it only trusts itself. It wants no one else telling it what to do, resists the fact that anyone else may be right, and it will do its own thing. And if anything goes wrong, of course, it will be someone else's fault. In the case of Moses and Israel, we already read in verses 38 through 41. This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They blamed Moses for not being there when they needed and wanted him, though he was serving them and receiving the blessing of the law in that moment. They blamed him, since he was not there. They had no choice but to do what they did right, so they took all those blessings that God had given them, the precious things that their neighbors had given them when they left Egypt, the silver and the gold, and they made a god out of it, the golden calf. And they offered sacrifices to it and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. They did not have faith in those things that God had given. Instead, they wanted something tangible, and it was far inferior. No doubt that they had been influenced by what they'd seen in Egypt, a land of thousands of false gods and the idols that represented them. And so they went back to this practice, and out came the calf. It is often easier to just do what the world does and to fall in line, to pick up on how the world does things and to do it their way. God's ways will often challenge us to trust in faith, to be patient and wait, to expect God to come through. And the shortcuts of the world can be so appealing and tempting, but we need to do what God wants us to and how he wants us to do it. These people had an inner need to worship, but they went about it the wrong way. And like these people, 
we won't always get it right. But when we are called out for it and we realize that we are in the wrong, how we respond is really important. Remember when Moses came down from the mountain and he saw the calf and the dancing and the debauchery, he confronted his brother Aaron, who had been the ringleader of this folly. And Aaron did the typical narcissistic things. First of all, he gaslit Moses. Well, it's because you are not back yet. He blame shifted to the people. Well, they asked for it. I was just serving them. And he twisted the story to his favor. Well, we just threw the gold into the fire and this boom, this calf, well, it just popped out. Not sure how that happened. Sure, Aaron, no molding and shaping took place, right? Stephen says something key there in verse 41, that they rejoiced in the works of their own hands. They were really proud of what they had done. This was their creation, their own attempt to do something in the situation. Though God had set them up with all that they needed for success, they made it about them. And that's what they were really excited about. God is the creator, and we were made in his image. And as image bearers, we get to create too. But sometimes we can get really focused on our thing, what we want to do. And we get more focused on what we, what we want to do than what God is doing. Rather than watching God work and joining him, we get preoccupied with our own thing. It may have started out with us doing something that God was doing, but in the momentum of things, we can get more focused on our success in it than God's glory in it. Like Saul of the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, we can start off okay, but soon get wrapped up in making everything about ourselves, like it all revolves around us. And like the Israelites in verse 41, we rejoice in the work of our own hands. In a world of competition and social media and branding and marketing, it can be tough to hold back from rejoicing in the work of our hands, to self-promote and find value and purpose and validation in likes and clicks and swipes and analytics. But for those who are called by God, it's about promoting His brand and His name and His reputation always over ours. We often look for ourselves in any photo in which we show up, don't we? Family pictures for any family can be a point of conflict because the best photo is always the one in which you look the best. It doesn't matter that your sibling's eyes are closed or another family member's hair is weird or their smile's a bit off or the angle they're standing makes them look heavier than they really are. If you look good in it, it's the best photo, am I right? And with Photoshop, we can definitely make improvements, can't we? I got pretty good at Photoshop when I was the yearbook teacher at a high school, photoshopping out things that should not be in the photos many times, like middle fingers flipping off the camera in, in club group pictures. I'm serious, happened all the time. Or photoshopping in someone who missed the photo because they did not listen to the announcements or show up when they were supposed to. Well, at Aaron's family holidays, we try more often than not to get a group photo on the front porch. But when you have that many people, someone is always missing. So we photoshopped in people who were not there, taking an older photo of the cousin or the couple and conveniently putting them on, on the edge or in the back row. Most of the time, you can't really tell. We insert them in the photo where they actually were not. Even our Christmas card this year, I may have photoshopped an arm onto my wife or myself, not telling where or which one. The original photo was cropped too close on the side and made it look a little unbalanced. So some photoshopping added an arm where it was not originally, hoping those who got it can't tell. But most of us have the tendency to insert ourselves into things. We photoshop ourselves into situations. We do this in conversation all the time. 
someone tells a story and we follow it up with, oh yeah, well, let me tell you my story that goes along with your story and may even top your story. Nothing wrong with having conversation and getting to know people and share life. But when we really think about it, we always seek to insert ourselves into things. Our sinful nature looks for ourselves in every situation, asking the question, how does it relate to me? How does this photo make me look? Where can I Photoshop myself into this situation to give myself importance? Like the Israelites in verse 41, we rejoice in the works of our own hands. All the things God had given them to glorify him, the leader in Moses, the living oracles of the law, the promise of a future Messiah and how God would use them in that plan of redemption. And they were preoccupied with the work of their hands rather than the works of his. So we insert ourselves into things and it can be a humbling thing when God crops you out, can it? Sort of, hey, you're actually not necessarily needed in this, or it's not about you after all, or I can use someone else too, or hey, why don't you take five? Go sit on the sidelines. I was speaking to someone who shared about a calling that they were fulfilling, and they'd been faithful in it for a good chunk of time and not an easy calling. And God was doing things, and they were blessed to be a part of it. But the Lord spoke to them through Scripture. When David has a desire to build the Lord a temple, but God tells David that he won't build it, but someone else will build it. It would be his son, Solomon. And this person I was speaking with said it was a nudge from the Lord, that they were to move on and walk away, which they did in obedience. And what God did next when they did step away and take their hand was so interesting. The work continued with some interesting twists and turns, and it sounded like God blessed that step as he continued his work. For those that Stephen was speaking with, they had taken the things that God had entrusted to them, and they made it all about themselves. And Stephen reminds them now about just how that had fared for them in their own history. Acts 7, verses 42 and 43. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets, quoting from the Old Testament prophet Amos now, Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Moloch and the star of your god Remphan, images which you made to worship, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. What a painful reminder of where this tendency to worship the works of their own hands had taken them before. Their narcissistic tendency to focus on themselves had led them to be taken captive to Babylon. After repeated patterns of ignoring God's commands, of falling into idolatry, or resisting wise counsel that came through repeated prophets sent by God, of lying to themselves about what they were doing and the repercussions of their actions. The Lord said, all right, you want idols? I'll give you idols until you've had enough. And carted them off to Babylon where there were more idols than they knew what to do with. It's like the proverbial story, at least in my day, of the kid getting caught smoking cigarettes. So their parents made them smoke a whole pack to make them so sick and disgusted by it that they would never smoke again. Not sure if anyone ever really used that tactic, but I can imagine it worked pretty well. Like when you get food poisoning from some food or some restaurant, and the thought of it for a long time to come makes you lose your appetite completely. The Lord gave Israel all the idols that they wanted in Babylon, and they did not satisfy. And all the desire was to go back to the land of Israel. An interesting thing when they did go back after the 70 years of exile. One thing we do not seem to see Israel struggling with anymore when they return to the land is the draw toward the pagan idols and and gods. The land had been full and filthy with them prior to their exile to Babylon, so many idols. But after, we don't seem to see that anymore. 
Though we see them begin to idolize a lot of other things, like their own religiosity, their own legalistic approach to the law, many of the religious idolatry that they were dealing with even here in Acts 7 in this scene with Stephen. It came out of that time after they came back from Babylon where they said, okay, we won't go to the idols anymore, but they made idols of other things. God does not always keep us from sin or cut us off from it when we're drawn away by it, though there will be warnings and rebukes and road signs telling us do not enter. But unfortunately, many times we end up learning the hard way. Rather than tasting and seeing that the Lord is good and being satisfied with that, we tend too often to be like the person that James speaks of in his epistle where he writes, But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. And there from the grave of death we finally cry out and say, Lord, you were right. I should never have gone down this path, and I ignored all the clues that you gave me. Now, from this grave of death that I have dug for myself, I cry out to you, Lord, the one who has victory over death, the resurrection, and the life. And as 1 John 1, 7 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The word confess there is homo legeo. Homo means together or the same. Logeo comes from logos, which means to speak or having to do with the word. So confess is homologeo, to say the same words, to say the same thing as another, to concede. Confessing means agreeing with God, saying the same thing about our actions as he says about them, saying, you're right. Whatever you said, yeah, now I say the same thing. Not making excuses or justifying or making light of the things that we've done, but saying, God, you are completely right. I say the same thing about this action or this thought or this attitude as you do. And when we do do that, when we confess our sins and agree with him that they are wrong and deserving of the repercussions, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is something our narcissistic tendencies and our sinful nature, nature have a hard time doing. Confessing and admitting that we are wrong and that God is right. We can always justify what we've done or why we deserve to do what we've done. But agreeing with him in his assessment of the situation and being broken of that and coming to terms that God is God and that we are not, that's what it means to confess. It allows the grace and mercy and forgiveness and the power of all that Jesus accomplished on the cross to flow freely into our lives and bring life where we have sown death. Now, one of the false accusations that they made against Stephen in Acts chapter 6 before this response to the religious leaders in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen did not cease to speak blasphemous words against the holy place or the temple and the law. And that false witnesses said, For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses delivered to us. Their Department of Homeland Security has painted Stephen to be a security threat this apparent terroristic attack planned to take out a temple. Now, though the accusations are not true, Stephen reminds them that the temple is the Lord's, not theirs. And God can do with it whatever he wants, because it was his tool in the first place delivered to the nation to help them stay focused on God and know how they should approach a holy God. Acts 7, 44 through 47. Our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles. 
whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. So here he kind of traces the step of this tabernacle, of this temple eventually. Stephen addresses their claim that he said they'd destroy the temple if given the chance. God had given the tabernacle and all the instructions for it because God desired a relationship with his people. And all that was needed for that, God established. The infrastructure, the roles of who did what at the tabernacle, the sacrifices that would be prescribed and performed there, all of it neatly delivered to them in the Old Testament. They had just to receive it, something that God had planned and purposed. And it was passed to each generation, from Moses to Joshua and on and on until David. It was a blessing to the nation to have this place to meet with God. It was part of their identity. In the wilderness, all the doors of the tents faced the tabernacle that was set up at the center each time they camped, so that the first thing that they saw each day as they stepped out of their tents was the tabernacle, reminding them of God and their relationship with Him and their need for Him. It's a good model for us as well, to begin each day with God as our focus, to set the doors of our tents towards Him, to take time to recenter on Him through devotions and time of gazing at Him before we step out into the day. But this was a blessing that God had given them, and David saw the value in it and sought to build a temple. But because of the blood on his hands from fighting to establish the nation, a necessary part of their history, Solomon was granted the green light to build this first permanent temple, not David. It was meant to be a blessing to help them connect with God. But by this day in Acts chapter 7, the blessing had become an idol to them. If we are not careful, we can take the blessings of God and elevate them even above God himself, focusing more on the blessing than on God himself. Even the good things that God has given us can become more important than him in our lives if we're not careful. I was listening to a pastor recently online talking about this, how easily our focus and attention can shift from Jesus if we're not careful. And our priorities can get skewed. The things God gave us to glorify him can become the things that take up our focus and cloud us from seeing him. As an example, this pastor, he mentioned for some, the family takes up all the focus. And this pastor even mentioned the ministry called Focus on the Family. Completely great ministry in serving a God-given purpose and need in the body of Christ. But how people can get caught up in shifting their focus and then only focusing on their family at the detriment of focusing on Jesus. The family that God gave them becoming the focus instead. When God's intent was for the family to cause them to have to focus more on Jesus, to steward that family the way that God intended. Now, the pastor was not sliding the ministry of focus on the family, a blessed ministry that has helped many and continues to do so. But he was pointing out that we can shift our focus. And that's on us, not a blessed ministry. It can be a fine line sometimes of being a steward and faithful of the people and the roles and the ministries and blessings that God has given us and losing focus and turning a blessing into an idol. And Stephen's audience had done just that. The temple that God had given them had become more important than meeting with God himself, the very purpose for which it was intended. So, so though it was a beautiful and ornate temple, Stephen points out that they have turned it into something that God never intended. Acts 7, verses 48 through 50. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. And Stephen now quotes from Isaiah. Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? God did not need a temple 
though he had blessed them with a temple. But if the temple was getting in the way of them seeking him and seeing him, then maybe the temple was not something that they needed anymore. It's interesting. They were clinging to this temple so badly. They had actually pushed God out and made it all about them, set themselves up as the authority to call the shots there. Early in Jesus' ministry, in John chapter 2, Jesus visited the temple, and he was grieved over what they had implemented there. All the inflated prices for sacrifices, the money-changing tables to make a profit, and he, quote, cleansed the temple. And then we see this about it in John chapter 2. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this about them, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had said. Now, back from that initial conversation, right at the beginning of Jesus' three-year ministry, there were rumors that Jesus planned to destroy the temple. But his whole focus was on the resurrection, what he had been sent by the Father to do, to go to the cross, to die for our sins, to be put in the grave, and to rise again, that he would rise again. Because he was the living temple, the place where we are to connect with God, the place of the ultimate sacrifice for sin, so much better than the sacrifices taking place at the temple. Jesus was the high priest, the holy of holies, that where we can meet with God. Some years after this conversation with Stephen in 70 AD, God would allow the temple in Jerusalem to be destroyed. When the Romans came in and ransacked the place, they had elevated the temple into something it was not meant to be. And they were blind to their need for Jesus, who had fulfilled all that the temple had been intended to offer them. And so the Lord let it fall and be taken out of the way, because he had provided something greater that they actually needed, Jesus. So Stephen, in reminding them of the fact that God does not dwell in temples made with human hands, it's kind of a prophetic word in a way that the very temple they were trying to defend and using to justify their resistance to Jesus and their followers, the Lord would release that temple to be swept away in light of his bigger plan. And we, if we're not careful, can do the similar things, not necessarily taking a temple and making it all about us, but the ministry God has given us, or the pulpit that God has given us, or the Bible study group to lead, or the Sunday school class, or the, the people to disciple, or even the family that we've given, that God has given us to glorify Him. We can take it and think, this is mine, and get possessive over it, and be controlling over it, and think that we have to make all the decisions, or we're solely responsible, when really, in the end, it's just a stewardship that was given to us by God. The Lord saying to us, hey, can you hold this for a second? I'll be right back. But would they listen? Would these Jewish leaders listen here in Acts chapter 7? Likely not. A narcissist thinks that they know what is best for them and everyone else, and are usually not open to hearing otherwise. Stephen rebukes them in verses 51 through 53. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers, who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. They had a pattern of not listening to anyone or anything other than themselves. They had resisted the Holy Spirit and all the work that he had done through the generations. 
his job to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment, but ignoring those pleas or shutting out his voice, instead doing what felt right to them. They had a history of killing off prophets, those that God was trying to use to speak truth into their situation. They had often killed off the voices of reason, silenced them, and they had done so with Jesus too, and would now do with Stephen. The narcissist will shut out any voices of reason that may challenge the reality that they are trying to paint or portray or live in or convince themselves of. Well-meaning people who have always had their best interests now becoming the enemy or discrediting anyone who stands in their way or calls their bluff because they do not want to hear it. Followers of Jesus are wise to keep counselors near and those who will be honest with them. We all need a second pair of eyes from time to time. I finally have a vehicle that has a backup camera and still getting used to it. But a 2016 Insurance Institute for Highway Safety study reported that rear view cameras reduced crashes involving backing up by 17%, whether those be parking lot issues or backing into pedestrians. In fact, reductions were larger for drivers 70 and older, a 36% decrease. Those rear view cameras pretty helpful as you get older and you can't always turn your head and vision might worsen. The second pair of eyes helpful in seeing those blind spots that you can't otherwise see. We are wise to invite counselors in to look at things and offer another perspective. Israel had ceased to do this. Cut off the voices of reason, the prophets that God had sent, who foretold the coming of the just one, Jesus. But by ignoring those voices, they had become betrayers and murderers, Stephen says. And this is where the scene ends tragically as this group of narcissists once again seeks to silence another voice that God had sent in this faithful servant, Stephen. Read Acts 7, verses 54 through 60. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. What Stephen said he could see was the final straw, Jesus at the right hand of God, equating Jesus with God as he stood there at the place of authority, ready to receive Stephen into God's presence. Jesus had been met with the rejection of this group of religious elite, but what Stephen saw implied that God approved of Jesus, which meant that they had been wrong. Stephen saw what they could not see. They no longer saw God. They were only looking at the realm that they had created. In Greek mythology, the one origin story of Narcissus says that he was a hunter who was known for his beauty, noticed by all. But he resisted all advances from others and fell in love with himself and his own image, staring into his reflection in the water, in love with what he saw, entranced by it and not realizing its similarity and that it was actually himself. As Narcissist was focused solely on his own reflection and didn't look up to see what else was truly there, the religious leaders that Stephen is addressing do not see what Stephen sees, God on his throne and the Messiah, 
Jesus, and their actions follow through as they rush out to put him to death, stoning their prescription for blasphemy, their accusation against Stephen, but stoning a right that they no longer had at the time under Roman law, the Romans having taken from them their right to enforce capital punishment. But they do not seem to care, doing what they feel is right in the situation. Saul, who will become Paul, playing his role as well. Sad to watch the leaders of the nation, those who should be pointing to God in the vessels of his work, instead blinded in their own reality and missing the opportunity that they had to glean from this humble servant, Stephen, and to turn to Jesus and become right with God. There was too much to lose, apparently, and the blood is on their hands as the first of many Christian martyrs is welcomed home by Jesus himself. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What a contrast. Rather than a narcissist who believed it's all about me, Stephen was a man surrendered to Jesus, saying, my life is yours to do with it what you will. We all have narcissistic tendencies. It's the root of sin nature. It just depends where we are on the spectrum or how loud the volume is turned up currently in those areas of our lives. Stephen was so Jesus-centered that he had the distinguished honor, I guess you can call it that, of being the first of many martyrs of the church, the first to die for their faith. But Stephen did not set this up for himself as a narcissist might. He did not live stream the event for self-promotion or with some other ulterior motive. Stephen did not plot and plan or manipulate circumstances or people to be noticed or needed or applauded. Stephen was just seeking to please Jesus over himself. And in fulfilling that goal, a Jesus-centered life, Stephen holds this bittersweet place of honor, the first martyr of the church. Man worships self and seeks greatness. And God did intend for us to be great and to do great things. It was when he created man on the sixth day that he said it was very good. We were the cherry on the top of all that creation in the garden. But the moment that we take our eyes off of him and take it in our own hands, the desire for greatness that he has placed in our hearts takes a corrupt turn and we seek to be great for us rather than great for him and to his glory. But God is faithful to beckon us back to be rightly related to him. And when we can humble ourselves long enough to sober up, to refocus and recenter, we can with sincere hearts echo what John the Baptist said about Jesus. He must increase, but I must decrease. Lord, as we have prayed before, thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. We rejoice that you are truly what it is all about and not us, because we corrupt it and we ruin it and we make a mess of it. We rejoice that good and holy and righteous and just is God on the throne, and you are worthy of our worship and honor and praise. Lord, turn our eyes upon Jesus and off of ourselves, and may we be a people who points others to you rather than robbing you of the glory due to your name. May we become transparent so people see past us and see you more clearly. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.